This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello, good day, hi. And Tablet Editor-at-Large and fellow film critic today, Liel Leibowitz. To bishvat not happy to bishvat as we record. Everyone's favorite holiday after Som Gedalia, to bishvat, has come and gone by now, and we once again forgot to honor it as we ought. But... We do have a great show for you. Today on our show, just one guest, but it's a super guest. It's a Jew of the Week, author Gabrielle Zevin, whose book Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow was sopping up the tanning lotion everywhere last summer on the beach, including Shay Oppenheimer, and, and is still one of the great reads of the year. But before we get to Gabrielle Zevin, uh, I want to greet two people I haven't talked to in a while. Leah Leibowitz, Stephanie Butnick, how are you guys? Hey, hey. It's great to be back together, even though we're not right now back together, but it's nice to see your faces. We all have travel stories this week. We've all been out and about meeting the Yidden wherever they may be. I'm going to go small, medium, large. Mine is small. I have a micro story. And it's only this. I gave a really fun talk at the University of Florida to a great group of people at the Bob Graham Center there. So much fun. During the Q&A, one very bright young woman, college student, undergraduate, stood up. We were talking about anti-Semitism, as, as one does. And she said, you know, a lot of the answers you're giving are really thoughtful and great for this country, but remember there are other countries. For example, I was not born here. And by the way, this woman has no accent whatsoever. She, she sounds North Central Florida all the way. So this is a bit of a surprise as she's talking. And she says, I grew up in a foreign country where there was so much anti-Semitism that we simply had to flee. And so when I was young, my whole family fled. What country do you think she said, Liel? For, for 500, Alex, uh, what is Belgium? For 8 million shaklim. She said, what is Belgium? I mean, literally, the I think it was the first or second question of the audience. Woman gets up and says, I just got to tell you my story. Had to flee the anti-Semitism in Belgium. Amazing. And by the way, not, not in the 40s. We, we fled in the 90s because right. the country no, no. continues to suck. Wait, that's crazy. It's very, <laughs> like, within her lifetime, they had she to was, flee. She was like a sophomore. She's 19 years old, I'd say, if a day. So she fled <laughs> in 2004 four or something or five, her family fled Belgium. And me, ever the slick operator, she fin- I didn't even hear the rest of her question, which was probably thoughtful and penetrating and interesting. I just waited for her to finish to say, oh my God, it's so funny you said Belgium because on my podcast, which you might have heard of, we're always saying Belgium sucks. <laughs> and then I said, oh, but wait, your family might actually love Belgium. It might've been sad for you. To- I, don't, I don't mean to take this lightly. Like maybe you miss Belgium. It's your pain. And then I just, it was all downhill from there. So that was, that was my, me just carrying the spirit of interfaith and transatlantic tolerance to Florida, to one of the great state universities. This is great because we can create like an expat community for Jews who fled Belgium. I think that's like one thing this podcast can do. You're safe here. We will protect you. If nothing else, I think I at least got her to listen to the podcast to hear all the, apparently she now thinks it's a podcast about Belgium. But but Jews and if Belgium. I may, this this week's uh, this week's <laughs> installment will have Belgium a plenty for your <laughs> listening pleasure. Stephanie, where were where were you? Where was I? Um, so I was on a super secret reporting trip to our next across the USA locale. Mm. Went with producer Robert Scaramuccia. We met Courtney Hazlett there. It was amazing. It was like a, a dream team effort. And you know, it's funny because. Robert points out that he and I have only met like a handful of times because he's <laughs> he started work in March of 2020. And I think we see I see him all the time because I do see his face all the time. And I decided that we spent more time together during this trip than like I think in his entire career working here. I know a lot about him. You had an intensive in Robert Scaramuccia. Figured out he was not Jewish. That was like, well, wait, what? Did, okay, so there's a funny thing. So we were interviewing people, particularly older people. I think that they were doing something when they were trying to figure out how much detail to give. If they were just like defining a term, or like they can they say it? They were you guys. Yeah. So they, they would look at me and they'd be like, are you Jewish? And I'd be like, what do you think? And then they'd look at Robert and be like, are you Jewish? And then he'd be like, no. Afterwards, he was like, I hate that because I, I don't want them to like stop and think about me. Like he wants to just be like a vessel for the audio, basically. Are you Jewish? No. Will you hide us when the Nazis come? Yes. In such cases, I think Robert should just say yes. I think he should lie. I think it's for the greater good to not stop their story, not make them second guess themselves. I I hereby give him a heter to just no. I, say I think yes. I think the line the line is is the Mark Cohn line from you know Walking in Memphis, like, "Ma'am, I am tonight." That's right. That's right. Are you a Christian child? Christian child, and I said, "Ma'am, I am tonight." 
And the other fun part is that I got to meet our managing producer, our showrunner, Courtney Hayslet, for the second time. And I can confirm to the two of you that she is still, in fact, tall. She's still 5'10". Exceptionally tall and exceptionally capable. Is Courtney in her native time zone different? And I'm giving away a little bit of where you are. Different from Courtney jet lagged and dragging in upstate New York. I have never seen someone so capable and so like problem solving than Courtney. It was like in her element as a TV producer, like just getting us, getting stuff done. It was unbelievable. And I have to say it's because she's tall. Pacific standard Courtney. Yeah. She has that like toward the sky energy. Here's some fun audio of like the beginning of our journey. Stephanie Budnick, can you tell me where we just, where we just landed? We just landed in I have no idea what time it is. It's definitely very late. We had a good flight. We did. We did. Good Wi-Fi. Good snacks. The question is, what are we doing here in Okay, so we are here to learn about the amazing history and present of community in How are you feeling about it? I'm feeling excited. We're going to meet some great people and hear really, really cool stories. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, Leah Leibowitz, I went to Florida. Stephanie went to a top secret, super secret location with Courtney and Robert. Can you top that? I believe I can, sir. I fulfilled a lifelong dream and visited snowy, gorgeous Yerevan, Armenia. Uh, Now, you will hear a lot about this trip because I schlepped recording equipment in part to record an amazing piece that we hope to run very soon about birthright Armenia, which is basically the Israeli model, but but learning from all the Israeli mistakes. It was so, first of all, look, it is a gorgeous, 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 gorgeous place with the food's amazing and everyone's super nice. And it's almost kind of like alarming because it's like bizarro Israel. It's like the same kind of food, the same kind of genocide memory, but no one's angry. Like you talk to them, it's like, so you hate the Turks, right? And they're like, no, man, we're cool. Like everyone is sort of like very weirdly relaxed. But then this the entire kind of weird parallel structure of like, they have a huge diaspora. They have birthright programs. They have stories like, well, you know, my parents really just wanted me to go to med school. But then I said, but all my life, <laughs> you made me go to Sunday school and taught me how important Armenia was. So you can't tell me now that I can't go to Yerevan. It's like, yeah, you're right. Grandma would be so proud. Like it's it's just, just, just intense. And as I said, a lot to come. I loved it dearly. By the way, this, this trip was really a genocide trifecta because <laughs> I flew New York to Warsaw. Mm. Warsaw to Yerevan, Yerevan to Jerusalem. So I had all three major it's, kind it's, of- It's flight of the living. You know, the flight of, of, of the living dead uh, is what it was. It was just fantastic. But then as it is time to leave Israel and go back home, I'm at the airport and this guy walks in. He's probably in his, I don't know, 80s. And he's sort of very stern looking and he has one of those radiant rabbinic faces with a long beard. And he's like really kind of piercing, you know, pale blue eyes and the big hat. And he's carrying like a big, you know, leather Talmud tractate. And he's sort of, you know, glancing into the mid distance with this ferocity and intensity. And then he takes off his coat and he's wearing a freaking Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl jersey. <laughs> and I just walk up to him and I was like, Rabbi, really, I'm really sorry if this is an inappropriate joke, but uh, can I just bless you with uh, Bore Pri Ha Hertz, which is a joke that appeals to probably two people alive, uh, being him and me. And to my great pleasure, he laughed. And Wait, we, could uh, you explain the joke to me? It sounds like borer pri ha'etz, which is the right. blessing that you make when you eat stuff falls off the tree. But like fruit, yeah. It refers, it refers to Jalen Hurts, the ah. quarterback of oh. the Philadelphia, of the soon-to-be repeat Super Bowl champions, Philadelphia Eagles. Go birds, is what the rabbi and I said as we parted at the security line of El Al Ben Gurion Airport. Go birds, go birds. Now the three of us were in many different parts of the world, and yet to remain spiritually close. We had an assigned text to bring us all together. And the text, which was assigned to me, I believe by Stephanie Butnick, was uh, the new Netflix movie, You People. This is the rom-com, I put that in quotation marks, with uh, Jonah Hill, co-written by Jonah Hill, starring Jonah Hill and Lauren London about a Jewish dude and a black woman who fall in love and their parents don't approve, their families don't approve. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends, 
but it's a rom-com in America, so you can probably guess how it ends. But this apparently is the movie that all Hollywood and all Jewish bloggers are talking about. I have a take. You guys have takes. Courtney Hazlett, our colleague, apparently, I don't know her take, but apparently she has the hottest take of all. Where should we begin with this movie? I think you should lead us in prayer. Take, take it away. <laughs> I should take it away? Okay, well, my, I think my, my take is the most, the most, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like in this room right now, in this Zoom room that we're in, my take is going to be kind of, kind of schwach, kind of weak, kind of parv. Look, a lot of what the movie's being attacked for are a lot of stereotyping of Jews. I mean, literally every Jew at High Holiday Services is a pervert or a weirdo or an apostate. Every Jew seems to just be obsessed with money. The Jews don't even have real Jewish jobs. They're like wealthy podiatrists. They're, they're rich and uncool. It's, it's <laughs> no offense, but chiropodist, podiatrist, I revere your community and I will need your services soon. But in the context of the movie, it's as if they are as unappealing as possible. I will just say that I think that's all true. I don't think it does right, but there's no nuance or sophistication to the portrayal of Jews. I will also add that the portrayal of the nation of Islam and black people is 87% as ridiculous and stupid as the portrayal of Jews. They get everything about the nation wrong. They get everything about black Islam wrong. Eddie Murphy is badly wasted in this movie. I thought it was just a failure of a rom-com. It was just a bad movie. I feel it doesn't merit the scorn. It almost gives it too much credit to heap the scorn on it it's getting. But I won't let that stop you guys from heaping the scorn on. Tablet Studios showrunner, Hollywood veteran, Unorthodox Studios West Coast liaison, and Brentwood correspondent Courtney Hazlett. You live in the community being represented here, the Jews of Los Angeles. How'd you feel about this movie? Well, to be clear, I can see the hills of Brentwood from where I, I live. From I your house. I am in the hills of Brentwood. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm not Fair lucky enough. enough to be Apologies. maybe one day. First of all, we're First hitting all. on something important. This is a Los Angeles satire. In the way that Fleischman is in trouble lands differently if you're in New York City or have been in New York City or lived in New York City, mm-hmm. this lands differently. I mean, everything here is very arch. It's the absolute most insane locations they went to. The podcast studio, if we can call it that, looks to be, last on my Zillow search, a $3 million apartment. <laughs> the house they move into once they're engaged looks like kind of like a $5 million-ish in Brentwood. I mean, nothing here is normal in any way. Uh, and, and related, this is not a documentary about Judaism or the nation of Islam. This is a comedy. So the dial has to be turned to 11 on absolutely everything. And so I think this is not the hill for Jews to die on. Yeah, it's terrible. There's a lot of terrible stuff in it. But this isn't the fight we want to pick. I'm going to yes and you here because I am going to argue that unbeknownst to the talented people who may or may not have made this movie, uh, (laughs) this is not a comedy. This is indeed a documentary. And as such is its strength. Because here's, here's what you see. You see two groups of people. And Mark, I completely agree with you that the blacks in this movie are every bit as ridiculous as the Jews. Uh, you see two groups of people who have some kind of affinity to their capital I, quote unquote, identity, which they understand correctly because of their stupid setting in said city that I love very much, uh, that their identity is primarily performative and it is not at all important that they know anything, practice in any way, or actually have any real deep feeling, except for I'm kind of this, which for the Eddie Murphy character means I'm going to change my name from Woody to Akbar, a fact that is like (laughs) lovingly kind of, you know, made fun of by his hilarious brother. And for the Julia Louis-Dreyfus and David Duchovny characters means I am basically just going to spew every progressive trope because that's really the extent of my Jewishness. The greatest scene in this movie, no spoiler alerts here, is when, uh, you know, Amira, the woman tells Ezra, the man, that uh, she would like her imam to officiate at the wedding. And he says, Okay, Miss Shakur, like, when did you get some Muslim? <laughs> and she's like, I was born Muslim. I've always been Muslim. <laughs> By the way, I think so the, best, the best line, I thought the best line of the movie was when one of the people in the black family hears that Jonah Hill is a Jew named Ezra. They're like, Ezra, what is he, a third generation civil rights icon? <laughs> that's right. A, that's right. There's a certain kind of prophetic name that's either a Jewish kid or an old black civil rights leader. So that's exactly right. But then, but then the conversation gets so good because, you know, Ezra wants to kind of, you know, rib her. And she's like, oh, so you're a Muslim now. So was that Muslim bacon you ate yesterday <laughs> for breakfast? And she's like, yeah, it was Muslim bacon. 
It was Jewish bacon, which is kind of really sweet because now you understand that here are two kids doing their best to have a natural human love connection in a world where both of their parents actually gave them nothing, nothing sustainable, nothing that could actually really nurture them. No real sense of belonging, no real sense of community, no real knowledge, no real practice, nothing. And here they are sort of like bumping their way in the dark, trying to form not just a human connection between, you know, two people, which is freaking hard enough in this world, but also to understand what their traditions really mean. And I think the two kids are so sweet and they genuinely try. Sometimes they fumble and stumble, uh, but they genuinely kind of try to form this connection. And their parents are so ridiculous in precisely the way that I think so many people who love talking about their identity, but actually know little and do less, uh, would really see as, you know, a reflection of themselves. So, I feel like something that we haven't discussed is the fact that David Duchovny is playing like doofy dad who like doesn't know. know how to talk to a black person. Like you're he's like, being this hot. Is, yeah, I'm like, what happened? He's full this into grandpa This is a Californication. When Mulder sits down to the piano and starts playing ordinary, ordinary, ordinary people. people. Though love sometimes hurts, well, I still put you first, but I think we should take it slow as us ordinary people. That's the truth. We don't know which way to go. I, I think that's great cinema, truth be told. But if you pull back the curtain, when you have a cast that is this high profile, they all have stakes here and they all have a say. And so people who are criticizing that the Jews here shouldn't have said this and these were lame jokes and that sort of thing, none of these people did this against their will. Right. I mean, that dinner scene was easily a three-day shoot, that one scene. There were so many takes. There were so many opportunities. And there are opportunities in post. Look, I think there were things that missed the mark. Um, the most offended I was was as a Jewish podcaster. Because Ezra is like a hip-hop podcaster, and they keep being like, my Jew boy, my Jew boy co-host. And we're like, are people always identified by that? But anyway, so yeah, he quits his job in finance to podcast full-time. And I think that like Jewish podcasters everywhere should be like, that's where, that's where we should right. be offended. That's doesn't talk where the money the is. Mic. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I think this is an interesting movie. Like it's Genesis is interesting, right? Because it comes out of all these conversations that Kenya Barris, who's the blackish creator has had with Jonah Hill over the years. And you think that there actually could be a really, really smart satirical conversation about both Jews and Blacks in culture. I want to say, I, I don't fully believe that Jonah Hill, for all his good intentions, is the best person to be in, like, is necessarily the right Stephanie, person. Hot, hot take number two. I'm, I'm coming back with a vengeance, baby, because it's actually perfect. Of course, there are really interesting conversations, but this movie is a great testament to the fact that Hollywood is no longer capable of having any conversations because it has become this bloated corpse of ideological Wait, inflammation so that yeah. even hold on, hold on. takes even Eddie Murphy and Julia Louis Dreyfus cannot save Can't this save deadened this. attempt at having any kind of real substantive talk because Hollywood's dead, over, burned, done. I'm not just saying this because people could come from the hills of Brentwood and pick it fly in, in my through your window. Exactly. I'm saying because not every movie needs to do that. I don't think Jonah Hill and Kenya Barris sold this on the backs of a conversation. They're like, listen, this is the story we can tell. We've got some amazingly funny people who are happy to like come play ball and we're going to make a fun movie. I think it was about, you know, falling in love over a great pair of sneakers more than it was about having these deep conversations. That was the meat on the bone, but it's not meant to be the conversation. And I think that it's very easy to see our people portrayed and want to have something really important to say about it. And I just don't think this existed for that. Look, but here's the thing. I disagree because they knew they were going to touch on these issues. So I think that there was a lot of thought put into it. I think there were a lot of fumbles along the way. I have to say, you know, when you know people are really outraged about something and then you like, you're like, okay, I need to like take in this bit of culture to understand what the fuss is about. I didn't think it was as horrific as like the clips. There were the few clips that circulated online that were like the dinner scene with all those like horrible, you know, like that really bad stuff. The rest of the movie, like when you watch it in the context of the whole movie, you're like, okay, it's part of this larger thing that I don't think necessarily nailed it all the time. But it's not as, you know, I was hearing from people who were like, I had to turn it off right away. I was like, it was just kind of like a bad movie. And I think it felt like 
when you have Julia Louis-Dreyfus being your Jewish mom, you have David Duchovny as a dad, you have, you have all these amazing actors in this thing. And you're like, it kind of sucks like that this wasn't better. And I know that's like not a, that's not a helpful critique of something. I think that it's this, a great critique. But, you know, I think there were, first of all, there were like small things that really got me. Like one of the early scenes is Yom Kippur. And so we see Jonah Hill in sneakers in a short sleeve button down shirt with his full arm sleeves of tattoos showing. And he has this line where his mom is like, where's your yarmulke? And he's like, oh, I must have left it in the car. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. No. Because you do not own a yarmulke. You get one at the synagogue, like you in particular. You didn't bring it in the car. And I'm just like, who's supervising this movie? Stephanie Butnick's transformation into a Jewish mother is complete. <laughs> I wasn't in the room, but I would, I would, I would bet my children's college tuition, which I don't yet have, but maybe one day we'll all quit our jobs and be podcasters like Jonah Hill. Big money. But I would bet my children's college tuition that there was more subtlety baked in this. That at some point he rolled up his sleeve and, and revealed the tattoo and maybe maybe he had a keep on his back pocket, but it was there, so that didn't make sense. And someone in the script says, I don't quite understand this. I love I'm that you're confused. defending the art form of creating cinema. <laughs> I have to because I want to sell another show. In the original, day. the tattoo that he had was his grandmother's Auschwitz number. I'm just saying. <laughs> the other thing is, so like at the end of the shul scene, and I'll stop talking about this at some point in the future, his mom is like, look at that girl over there. And it's like a kind of like a beautiful, but like slightly schnozzy actress. And they go on a date afterwards. Um, he notably is able to roll his sleeves down. His sleeves were rolled way up in synagogue so everyone can see his tattoos. And she's like, oh, you work in finance. It must be so fun to work with money. Yeah, that was the worst. I buy the argument that this is like very, this is satire, but I don't think it's so artful. Like, I think if it if it lands, it's brilliant, but I don't think this was brilliant. I think this was a little lazy. So basically you're saying they dumbed it down for the Goyam is what you're saying, Courtney. <laughs> I'm saying that there's often more artistry in the earlier scripts than what oh, makes yeah. it to screen. I believe that. And I have no reason to defend him. Let me just be clear. But I just know how the sausage is made, the kosher sausage. The thing we haven't talked about is like the slave trade line, right? Where there's this whole conversation between the parents. There's like this Louis Farrakhan thing where the Eddie Murphy character loves him, is very close with, has met him. And the, the line is like, are you familiar with, you know, Louis Farrakhan? And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is like, uh, his positions on Jews. Yeah, like I am. And so then they sort of go into this tense back and forth. And then- about how, when you got here, they, there's like this equation of the Holocaust. So it's all missteps on the part of everyone. And that's the point, right? These people are just like saying bad things to each other, both well-meaning and not well-meaning. But then there's this one line, and I think this is where people really got upset, which is like the Nia Long character, Eddie Murphy's wife, says like, you guys came here with the money you made off the slave trade. And David Duchovny's like, show me your sources on that. And she makes a joke about like, go get me my purse. I have my slave receipts in the purse. But like, that's a really big thing to say in a movie that is watched by a lot of people. Okay, but here's the thing, Stephanie Taylor Butenick. Mm -hmm. That is exactly how the conversation would have gone down between those semi-historically literate black people and the semi-historically literate white Jewish people across the table from them, which is the black people would have said, in this scenario, this ignorant Farrakhan-inspired thing. And then the Jewish people, because they know no more about history than the black people, would have had no proper response because people are, of all races in America are historically ignorant. The thing that we're up against is, are there times when we don't portray the actual reality of the dumb shit people say because we're afraid it will be accepted as prescriptive or true by Dutch audiences, you know, looking at subtitles? But it definitely and, is. But like, that's, that's not our problem as artists. I just feel like tough. I mean, this stuff is as old as the seas. Like, it's like when Philip Roth published Portnoy's Complaint and there were panels everywhere. There was one at Yeshiva University. It was like, he's making the Jewish mother look bad because Gentiles read this and they don't know that it's an exaggeration and that it's like amped up. They think this is what Jewish mothers are and it's misogynist. And it's, and it's like, but artists sometimes show stuff that's there and there are mothers like that. And there are conversations which Jews don't know what to say when they're accused of being slavers. And I, I, I don't know. And by the way, the other thing people are attacking is that Jonah Hill makes this joke about how the engagement ring is really small. So he's going to say it was his grandma's Holocaust ring, which, by the way, is funny. That's just funny. And I don't know. I mean, the problem with the movie, I think, is that it's bad. I'm still not sure if Leo likes it or if he just thinks it's a wonderful example of, of what <laughs> of not how to dumb like. we all are. No, OK, here. Wait, I want to go back to this Holocaust ring because here's what I this is why I'm like mad at the movie. Why is the ring so small? He works in finance and buys a ton of streetwear. 
So I'm that's like, the real issue. Why is he spends so all his money on streetwear? But by the way, it's in a Tiffany box, which anyone knows you would never do. That's just a bad deal. So it's like, who? What? I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And I think what's the funny, weird, like timing thing is that Jonah Hill just legally petitioned to change his name officially to Jonah Hill. His name is Jonah Feldstein, and Hill, I think, is like his middle name or someone's maiden name. And so you're like the double whammy of like. Oh, you hate yourself. You hate your Jewish identity. Like, that's what we read into that. And then you see this movie and we're like, ah. Oh. Can I sing us out on a somewhat reflective note? Why is it that every portrayal of Shul in every work coming out of Hollywood is that Shul is oppressive and horrible and a place where if you're under 50, you go because people over 50 are guilting you. And once there, you're abused and humiliated and can't get out fast enough to go do drugs or have sex or do cool things. Because none of these fucking heathens have ever been. So how would they know? And these movies are often, as in this case, made at least in part by Jews. And that's not the way the black church is portrayed. It's portrayed as complicated and weird, and but but often quite joyous and amazing. And even Catholic mass is often portrayed as mystical and beautiful with the incense and all that. Sometimes shul is boring, but sometimes shul is beautiful. That in some ways upset me more than anything. But that's just like what you're saying to me. Like, you're like, why are you mad that they're showing bad stuff? Or they're like oh, repeating well, a bad enough. line. You've fair, been no, fair, con. I guess I'm wondering why every Jewish filmmaker hates synagogue so much. Where's the pro-synagogue filmmaker? But you're I right. Know. I'm holding them. I'm saying, why don't you rep for the people beautifully? Well, now that I've defended Netflix so thoroughly, maybe I can pen that cool shul rom-com. Would you please? Where, Would you please, yeah, Courtney Hazel? The Holocaust ring is really robust and properly packaged. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I just- Julia before, Roberts I, in Malve Malka, the movie. <laughs> to take to take us out of this, I just want to shout out Jewish actress Molly Gordon, who is Joan Hill's sister in this. She's amazing. She's in a bunch of movies lately. And like, she was the she was the winner of this movie. Molly Gordon for the win. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J, news of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. Uh, lots of news this week, including some very sad things in the Jewish world and things that we're going to talk about on future episodes. But really, the thing we couldn't let go by because of our commitment to a certain coverage area, as they say in the news biz, is this item, to which I throw to our foreign correspondent, Liel Bencion Yehoshua Yishai Leibowitz. So I'm not going to deliver the news straight up. Do you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Of course I do. Let's play Choose Your Own Adventure. Okay. Take me back to 83. I'll take you back to uh, to the time where you had one baby and that yep. baby was indeed a baby. And right. let's say uh, you and your wife traveled at the airport. Let's say at the airport in Tel Aviv, you know, to keep with the news story. And you were traveling home to your home in a certain European country yep. with the baby. Yep. And then your airline told you that if you wish to bring the baby on the flight, you must pay an additional $25. Sure. Do you A, say, huh, okay, well, that's a bit annoying, but here's your $25, please let me bring the baby on the flight. Right. Or do you B, leave the baby on the ground, check in at the gate and wait for the flight to take off before being arrested by police when they figure out that you literally abandon your baby in order to not pay $25? Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take this straight. I don't even know what the plot line of this or the joke. I'm just gonna say, as a normal, authentic, Hamish, sane human being with normal parenting instincts, I'm gonna say that I pay the twenty five dollars, even up to a hundred dollars. <laughs> I will say, and he has five kids, so that adds up. I will even pay a hundred dollars per child to take them on the plane with me, rather than leave them behind in the airport. I am thrilled, thrilled, relieved, but not surprised to hear that this is what you would do. This is not, I repeat, not what the couple <laughs> in today's breaking news story reported. I should say all over the world did. This couple was told by Ryanair, the, the airline they were flying, that indeed they would have to pay something like $25. This couple indeed left the baby behind. They indeed went to security, went to the duty-free, had a coffee, and were discovered at the gate about to board the flight home. Now, here's my other question, my dear friends. 
where is home? Where is the couple that would abandon a baby to not pay $25? Where do such low-life human beings live? They are cheap, money-obsessed, cunning, unfeeling, sneaky. The stereotypes could only apply to people from one country. It's somewhere in the lowlands. Could be the Netherlands. Could be Liechtenstein. Could be Belgium. Lowlands, low morals. The child rape capital of the world, Belgium, strikes again as the couple in question were indeed two lovely Belgians. So, okay, this is a horrific story. Um, and when I first it read it, I'm just going to read this. <laughs> I'm, gonna, hilarious I'm just going to read this from CNN Travel. This is a quote. They put um, it in the travel vertical? Not even yes. news? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Not even news. This <laughs> Abandoning is, your child in an airport is a travel story? <laughs> this is a statement from the Israeli airport authority. Um, uh, this is what they told CNN. A couple and an infant with Belgian passports arrived for a flight at Terminal 1 without a ticket for the baby. The couple also arrived late for the flight once the check-in for the flight was closed. The couple left the infant seat with the baby and ran toward the security checks at Terminal 1 in an attempt to reach the boarding gate for the flight. They're not Jewish, by the way. I, I made that joke. So, Quinn, is it? They're Belgian. They're not Jewish. I mean, we don't know. You can be both. Okay. But so when I first read this, I was like, this must be like, it's an infant. They must have just been like so frazzled. They like literally, like, you know, the thing you're terrified you're going to do is like look mm-hmm. down and realize you've left mm-hmm. your, your baby at security. I've um, done it. But these people seem like monsters. Yeah. Or were they trying to like get their child to make Aliyah? <laughs> like leaving them it on was the an Israeli anchor baby. They were it was trying like a little to anchor Moses their situation. Child. It's a different interpretation of the law of return, which is if you just return your child to Ben Gurion Airport, they're Jewish and Israeli, and they can just stay. The funny thing is that the baby then uh, wakes up from a nap, realizes that his parents left him behind, and and flew back to Europe, and that he's indeed, shall we say, airport alone. And then he foils two uh, goofy but lovable thieves who try to break into the airport. <laughs> Airport alone, coming soon. They've actually signed him up for the IDF. He's actually in basic training right now at the age of two. Honestly, but like, isn't that child better off without the parents? But I love that there are Belgian people who are going to Israel for travel. Good for them. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Jewish guest this week is Gabrielle Zevin. She is a novelist. You might have read her books because everyone read her books. They're The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey or Young Jane Young, which I just this weekend discovered in Hebrew translation on my mother's nightstand. She joined Mark and Stephanie to talk about her latest book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Have a listen. Gabrielle Zevin, thank you for joining us on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. We've all read your book. By all, I mean tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, but more specifically, me me and Stephanie. And, you know, I actually had imposed a rule a while ago saying no more authors because, you know, authors reps are constantly pitching you. And like when you're a podcast, you can literally book up forever with authors. And then once in a while, we read a book and say, well, you know, obviously we have to have 
this author. Right. Once in a while, you just like have that unkempt person who is going to be boring. You know, you just, (laughs) you let the gates open for one of us Uh, and then you close them immediately after never again, you know. For people who haven't read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, it's a book about gamer design, about the 90s and early aughts people of, I would say, the sort of loosely Gen X generation that Gabrielle Zevin and I are of. It's a book about friendship. It's a delightful romp as the cliche goes, but it's, it's so much more than that. And- I want to ask you, first of all, and we're going to circle back to so many things. It's also a book with a half Jewish, half Asian character, and you're on a Jewish podcast. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you, like, do you have a Jewish aunt who's bragging about you to everyone? Like, what sort of response have you gotten from the the Jewosphere? (laughs) Or are we it? Are we the only response you've gotten from the Jews? You've just been fighting off gamer nerds some of whom were Jews, but but this is the first primarily Jewish response you've gotten. No, you know, actually, like right before the book came up, out, it was like Jewish Representation in Literature Month. There is such a month. And also Asian Representation in Literature Month. And they were the same Are month. they the same month? I or think do we so. get different months? No, they're okay. the same month. And so I was pretty much like the perfect person for those oh months. Oh my God, yeah. And I would say yeah. it's, it's actually quite equal. Like I'm hearing in the same percentage of Jews and Asians are are contacting me all the time, you know? And I, I feel like I don't have an aunt that's out there. I have an uncle who is out there in a strong way for me, but I, I don't know that I have an aunt that's doing the work, you know? Where is he? Where is this uncle? The uncle is in Connecticut. Oh, as as am I. He might've hit me up at the farmer's market and thrust the book into my hand. He might've done that. He might've done that, you know? You know, I'm also curious, here's this novel, like all great books, it's its own thing, right? It's not you're not a woman writer. You're not a Jewish writer. You're a writer writer who wrote a great book. But I'm curious if the marketing people, like, were they saying because it's a gamer book, were they saying, we're going to send you to weird cons. You're going to go to Comic-Con and BookCon and JuCon. And it's going to like, where did they think the market was aside from just people who love great literature? I mean, I feel like their marketing involved telling people you don't have to game to love this novel. <laughs> And then repeat endlessly, because I think that the people that Knopf sells to are not necessarily gamers, though I would argue that everybody is in some way a gamer. And that's a different part of this discussion. But, you know, I think they're kind of the core audience for a Knopf novel is somebody who likes literary fiction. And so that's the one that they sold to, you know. And by the way, it worked on my wife and me. Non-gamers loved the book. Why don't we go down that rabbit hole for a moment? In what sense is everyone a gamer? Well, I, you know, I have a long, probably annoying answer about this, but I think everybody plays in some way. You know, I think the natural state of humans is to play and that's actually quite healthy, you know, but I also think in a very real way, everybody plays something. So maybe some people are playing Wordle, maybe you're doing a crossword puzzle, you know, maybe you are playing a video game or maybe you're just playing chess. Everybody plays. And beyond that, sometimes when I'll have a lady, and it could be a lady or could be a gentleman, come up to me and say that I have no connection to gaming at all. And I'll say, well, do you use Facebook? Do you use Instagram? Because these are actually gamified social media systems. And, you know, they have currencies and that are hearts and likes, you know, and so there are rewards to it. And maybe it's a very dull game that seems to have no ending, but it's a game that you are definitely playing that is constructed like a video game is. And so I think almost everybody plays in some way. Um, And as we move into kind of the consequences and the future of the world, which maybe will be the metaverse, who knows? I think we'll see even more of a sense that sort of our, our virtual identities become important and the meaning of them and how they change our lives. So I want to talk about one of the games in the book. It is a game called Solution. So when we see Sadie Green and like the first beginnings of the book, bringing this this early game she created called Solution, which is inspired by her grandmother's experience in Germany. Tell us about this. It's a brilliant. It's, it, I felt like seen. And this is an amazing way in which you've sort of gotten into the psyche of both like the intergenerational trauma in the Jewish community, but also sort of how young people are taking ownership of some of their own pasts. Can you tell us a little bit about the game Solution and how we can play it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny how many people want to avoid speaking of the game Solution, you know? So I'm glad that we're speaking of the game Solution. But the thing about it is, you know, for me, I was raised in Boca Raton, Florida, which as you may or may not know, is 66% Jewish. So as a kid, I thought the whole world was Jewish. And when we had Survivor Day in Boca Raton, Florida, there were so many survivors, you know. And so I kind of grew up with a, a real sense of like the Holocaust loomed in a really kind of 
physically present way in my life. And so I think when I started to write Sadie's Game Solution, it came from the ways in which I think before anything has actually happened to you, the things that happen to the people around you become the things that you might make art about, you know? And so even in a way, because I don't think Sadie's grandmother is in a place where she would make this video game, but for Sadie, this- Who's a survivor, Yeah, grandmother. Sadie's grandmother, yeah, yeah. you know, her experience in the Holocaust is a defining event and, a, and like a central event of the way Sadie sees herself. And so it makes sense that the first game she makes is about the Holocaust, even though you don't know it when you're playing it. And so I think, you know, for me, the game is very much about the fact that you can win something on points, but lose it morally. You know, <laughs> So that's that's what I enjoyed, enjoyed about it, <laughs> that there is no winning solution. You know, the best you can do is abstain from playing, you know. Or be armed with Hannah Arendt as you're playing, right? Right. Like have... <laughs> well, in fact, so, that is Sam's criticism of the game, that like it doesn't allow you to actually act in some way. He was like, well, yeah, so you figure out that you are morally right. complicit and then what do you do? You know, and so that I think is the seminal part of their collaboration, you know. But I, I think it, it's an interesting subject, you know, how video games can actually be vehicles to teach things about you know, morality and, mm-hmm. you know, the video games don't have to just be sort of mindless in a way, you know, I think many of them aren't. Are you a gamer? Do you define, I mean, do you play a lot of games? I don't define myself as a gamer. And I think part of that has to do with probably thinking that gamer meant certain things, like, you know, in the 17 years since I published my first novel, there isn't a single uh, interview with me that talks about video games or that even, I never wrote even a reference to video games in any of the nine books I wrote before this book. And so, that said, I played for 40 years. <laughs> you know, my dad uh, was a computer programmer. And for me, like basically when I published my first novel, it was kind of a calamity because one of the things was uh, that books did not provide the exact same comfort that they once had, you know. <laughs> so I found myself turning to video games at times. And and eventually the calamity of your first novel passes. And But that said, yes, I've basically gamed uh, for 40 years of my life without ever thinking that that was something interesting, never with an ulterior motive before about five years ago when I started working on this book, you know. So I never have once in my life called myself like a gamer. I'm Gabrielle Zevin, I'm a gamer. It seems still strange to say, but I think that discomfort has more to do with how we see the typical gamer, that it has to do with the, the truth of my experiences. I have played a lot of video games in my lifetime. <laughs> in the book, one of the characters creates a video game that is tremendously Japanese influenced. There ends up being this very interesting conversation about cultural appropriation and whether these characters, neither of whom, of, of the designers are Japanese in any sense, right. can do this Japanese game. And how could you even make that game today? They made it 20 years ago. And I, I felt like the conversation they had was extremely articulate on that topic. Yeah, you know, it's something I don't think anybody who works in the arts doesn't think about. You know, maybe somebody claims that they don't, or maybe some people exist in some corner where it doesn't occur to them. But for me, it's something I think about a lot. Um, again, as we've already, I think, covered, I'm a half Jewish, half Asian person, which in the current cultural discussion means I'm allowed to write about Asian people or Jewish people, you know. But I don't think I have a particularly, and Sam says the same thing, like a particularly rich and nuanced understanding of either Jewish people or Korean people because I am those things, you know. And so I think this is, to me, an interesting subject, you know. put it mildly. Um, but but yeah, you know, so I was, I, I thought to me, again, one of the merits of the novel is the fact that it takes place. I don't mean like, oh, hey, this is a merit of the novel, but something that was interesting to me was writing the story over 30 years. You know, you kind of see the ways in which things that you think are true today are not things that are necessarily true if you're looking at something 30 years ago. And I think there are a lot of things for which that can be said. And one of them is, you know, appropriation. So when Sam and Sadie go to make Ichigo, they just know that they love Hokusai. They're not thinking to themselves, like, are we appropriating when we do this? These are just references that they love. And so in 1995, that's fine. They've never heard the word appropriation. In 2013 or something, when that interview is taking place, you know, it, it becomes not fine, you know, and that was interesting. That's something you start to see only as you've lived longer in the world, you know, the ways in which you think you are on the right side of things. You are not always on the right side of things. And then sometimes you flip back to being on the right side of things again. I want to go back to the Holocaust for this purposes of this conversation, <laughs> not in time, but in the conversation, because this isn't the first instance where the idea of like survivorness and survivors has come into your work. One of our producers sort of said, you know, you have to ask her about 
Young Jane Young, which is a book that takes mm. place in Boca with a lot of Holocaust survivors. I'm, I mean, I'm so curious, maybe because I, I'm particularly inspired by what it means to grow up around survivors and to know them and to sort of know them as people, but also know them as, as sort of something else. Um, and so I think that's something you'd really deal with nicely in your work. So, so yeah, tell me about the Holocaust. <laughs> um, from my point of view, I don't come from survivors. I come from people that did not make it. <laughs> You know, so if anything, I'm particular. like, it's actually a luxury to know, to have survivors in your family. You know, I have, like, I come from a family of dead people, you know, so we were not survivors, you know, many of anybody that was there. Like, so my particular Jewish lineage is Polish, uh, Russian, and Lithuanian, and the Poles did not fare well, you know, in during the Holocaust. And so for me, I felt, you know, when we would go to these Holocaust, you know, survivor days, that were that felt like they were all the time when I was a kid. Every day. Um, and, and, and at some point it occurred to me that like a lot of the survivors I had met as a kid and that were so impressive to me that there would not be survivor days anymore because, you know, we're at a place where most people that survived the Holocaust are no longer alive, period. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of thinking about that several years ago that I think made me think about um, the subject of, of survivors at that at that time. You know, so for me, when I would go to Survivor Day, what I would see is the possibility for relatives I did not know. And and again, I don't mean to be at all, you know, anything but reverent as I'm speaking. But for me, it seemed like almost the sense of absence felt creative to me in a certain way because I could imagine people that I had never met, people that shared my genes and and that kind of thing. And and also for me, as a half-Jewish person, and my mother is the is <laughs> my father is the Jew and my mother is the Korean, which means most places I'm not Jewish at all. But one place where you knew you'd be Jewish would be in the Holocaust, where you only needed to have a Jewish grandparent. And so and yeah, on podcasts. Yeah. And on podcasts, podcasts. You're Jewish. And so the similar place things. where I always yeah. felt where I felt yeah. the most Jewish was when I would hear stories of the Holocaust because I knew that that would have affected somebody like me, probably for more than one reason, but 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 particularly for that reason. And so that's a very strange place to people sit. who got people who got screwed by the Axis powers, Jews, <laughs> Koreans, right? You actually like, <laughs> right? None of like none of my people did well, really. So <laughs> so basically, like I just would feel a strong sense of being Jewish above all other times when discussions of the Holocaust were happening. So there's a particular poem by Adrian Rich that says, neither Gentile nor Jew split at the root, you know? And so that was what I felt like. Um, And I think that's why it it always comes back in my work over and over again. That's fascinating, by the way. That's like such a fascinating answer and such a fascinating way to think about all this. And probably not unusual. And it's so bokeh. Yeah, very bokeh. Um, you know, and I think it's it's really strange. Like for a long time in, as a kid, because like I mentioned, Boca is so largely Jewish. And I really thought that the whole world was going to be Jewish. And then I was like, what? It's less than 1%? This is not possible. Because again, like there were so many uh, Jewish people when I was a kid. That was Stephanie's experience because she's Stephanie's from Great Neck. And like she didn't meet Gentiles till Duke, right? Yeah, till I got to college. It's then I found college. out like it's- we weren't a majority. My roommate um, from college, so weirdly at Harvard, they assigned me to like a Jewish roommate and an Asian roommate, you know? <laughs> but anyway, the Jewish one was, your was room from in the Great Neck. So. Wait, which, who did you like more? <laughs> um, I liked them. <laughs> I liked them equally. <laughs> <laughs> she said convincingly. <laughs> <laughs> I actually felt like I related deeply to both of them, you know? And, but I kind of always felt, you know, that sort of code switching thing, I guess, you know, where you're, I, I felt more Jewish among Tali Zinger you know, and more Asian among Kristen Choi, you know? <laughs> so. I feel like I know both of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what year were you at heart? What year were you at I Harvard? was 2000. 2000, okay. So I'm, I was 96 and not at Harvard. But Kurt Anderson wrote a great essay once um, arguing for 1996 being the best year ever. <laughs> it was a good year. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, he's talking about the period where we had cell phones, but not smartphones. Yeah is one of his examples because, you know, you could, a cell phone was useful. You could call people and, you know, say I'm running 10 minutes late, but you didn't have, you had no desire to stare at, right? right? There was nothing fun on it. And you weren't actually except, tied to it in any way. Like you still just came home and if the phone was ringing, you picked it up. You know what I mean? Exactly. And so your book, 
I feel the warmth of nostalgia in the sections that are on, I guess, are those guys late yeah, 90s? Yeah, it's like mid-90s, yeah. And you also gave an interview to the Times back in June, I think, where you, I'm just tying, you see I'm tying this all together. You see I the masterful see interview together, technique, yeah. where you talked about how you really are not such an internet person. You actually enjoy paper mail. You actually are not on the web all the time. And I'm curious if you feel like, I mean, I'm so evangelical about this stuff that like it's all ruined everything, that, you know, we really should go back to the 90s in so many ways. <laughs> Certainly your book has passages that can't help read that way because it's like the space, the creative space they have to work on a game without checking social media all the time was better back then. Do you feel like your life in some ways would have been better back then? Or do you feel like novel writing might've been better or literary culture? I mean, how do you see the march of time? Are you a declensionist? (laughs) Has things gone downhill? (laughs) No, I don't think things have gone downhill. I think um, there are ways in which I feel a gratitude that I was born the year I was born. Um, And that's only something I can say with the perspective of time. So for instance, I think, you know, as somebody who isn't naturally extroverted, I would have been, and Sam and Sadie discuss this later in the book, that it would have been overwhelming to be confronted with so many people who were very bright and talented doing the exact same things you were doing, which is kind of like what the internet uh, allows you to know if you are a young artist. And I think about how just being very alone um, was really useful for me creatively. And it still is something useful to me. You know, I think the thing about the internet is that we are all babies in terms of how we are responding to it. And there are ways in which the internet itself is a baby, but we've kind of allowed it to be this like unruly toddler that like controls everything about us. But that said, I want to couple that with the belief that I think that, and I think the book has this, that there is a real possibility for uh, positive interactions in virtual spaces, you know, that just because we've all been horrible and it's led to like some horrible things politically and that, you know, everything has sort of been run amok doesn't mean that that is the way things have to go. I think internet citizenship will require a superior form of citizen than we have seen before. You know, so I think it isn't inevitable. And this is something said in the book that we end up the worst versions of ourselves behind the mask of an avatar. I think that we will all need to get very, <laughs> quite a bit smarter very quickly about all of this, you know, uh, if the world isn't just ruined by it all, you know. <laughs> I will just say that that was one of the most interesting things in that article that it just blew my mind, really spun me for a loop when you said, of course, you know, we're just internet babies. And I, I tend to think of like the internet as almost having come and gone, like it's jumped the shark and we've seen the best and the worst behind us and it'll get less significant and interesting. And you said the exact opposite thing, which is like, we have no idea where this is going to be in 50 years, which I thought was just really provocative. And I mean, I, so. what would be bad is if like all of our best minds just absented ourselves from it. You know, I, I don't, I'm not counting myself among those people, but if everybody who was really smart was like, you know, we're not going to just be on the internet. And I, you know, I don't think that's a useful stance. Uh, um, and, you know, again, for me, like I am somebody who is really drawn to technology, but would rather not participate in the ways it seems like we're being forced to participate, you know, all the time. I just think that there are possibilities for us to, again, be better people than we have been so far. It doesn't all just have to be like, and I don't mean to insult the selfie, but it doesn't all just have to be like selfies and accomplishments. Maybe there is, maybe it will become something better. Maybe it'll become, maybe there is still the possibility. Maybe it's a diminishing one, but there's still a possibility that there will be a better world that is online, you know? You know, I keep thinking about this idea of solution, right? This thing is like, if you don't ask questions, you win the game, but you lose, right. you lose morally, right? And if you ask questions, your score gets lower. And I think that that's a lot sort of what you're saying about the internet and sort of what's happening in culture right now, right? Where it's like, your score goes down the more questions you ask in so many venues, it feels like. And so I wonder if taking the internet for granted and being like, well, this is what happens. I give my data, I give my this, and I can buy this thing with one click and then all I scan my eyeballs and it's so easy. Like maybe the lesson of solution is that like we should be asking more questions about all of these things in our lives. Right, that if we are, if we slow down and we're thoughtful, you know, I think, Again, I feel overwhelmed sometimes by the amount of information. I remember as a kid, my dad was a newspaper reader. And every day he would sit down and read the whole newspaper, like cover to cover, which seemed like a lot to me. 
But if you think about it, that was really like a, a finite <laughs> and relatively at that stage neutral source of news, you know. And, you know, to me, it seems like the world feels more unknowable because I don't even know really what I should be looking at at any given time. So at least in, in solution, if you actually slow down and read the messages as they come, you will figure out what's happening, you know, but I think our actual world is far more, is so complicated in a sense. It's hard to know, you know, which story to follow and what it all means in the end. I feel sometimes quite overwhelmed by, again, the amount of information. That said, as a novelist, I also love that amount of information. You know, any subject I want, I can like learn so much more. I couldn't have written this game probably if there wasn't the internet and the way it exists. This game, this book, I just called my book a game. I couldn't have written this book if, and all the games in the book, if not for again, having such huge access to information. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's so funny, even the idea of sitting and reading in the newspaper uninterrupted, I'm like, but did he check in? Like, it's like just sitting and doing one thing. I feel like we don't even do that anymore. Right, I just remember him, like, if I think of my dad one way, I can just see him sitting at our kitchen table just like methodically going through this newspaper every day, you know, and I would read kind of alongside him, but like one or two sections, but it felt really impressive to me that, and, you know, I feel like, again, I never know things in a rounded way. There are huge things that I seem to miss um, <laughs> that I don't know about, you know, and huge sub and subjects because of the way the algorithms work that I know endless information about. And I think this is kind of the riddle of our time. <laughs> But one of the solutions is the culture somehow comes together and decides that something's the song of the summer or the book <laughs> of the summer and sends word out. And everybody's recommending your book to me, which I've read already. So it's kind of like the book of the summer and, you know, Mazel Tov to you. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and it's nice to be the book of the summer. The book of the summer. And, and Gabrielle Zevin, you're also Jew of the Week on Unorthodox. So thank you for being that as well. <laughs> you can name another one too, because I'm only half Jew. So. You are, no, no, it doesn't work you that are way. for you're us. All, you fully count. Gabrielle Zevin, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Mailbox. Um, I want to begin the mailbox this week with a wonderful voicemail. You'll recall that last week, Julia Whalen's Gentile question of Stephanie was, when I'm reading an audiobook, how do I pronounce that word that is the Jewish teaching, the books with, you know, from Moses, T-O-R-A-H. Is it Torah? Is it Torah? Is it? And, and, and she and Stephanie had a, a good long conversation about that, but not to the satisfaction of this listener. Hi, my name is Ruth. I'm from New York. And I'm a regular listener to your podcast. I really, really enjoy it. I just, uh, as, a, as a listener, and I was just listening to your most recent show and talked about the pronunciation of the word T-O-R-A-H, and I was kind of taken aback by it because you were laughing, and it seems the word is Torah. You learn Torah. As an Orthodox Jew, we learn Torah. Some will learn Tyra, not Torah. Torah or Torah, or if you're from Israel, it would then be called Torah. To me, it's, it's there's no question. You know, Torah, 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 not Torah, not that one. I hope you're having a really great day and really enjoy your show. Wow. Okay, so she breaks it down for us. And Ruth, all we have to say is, uh, Baruch Hashem, you know your Torah. Now, Next letter is for Liel. And I think, Liel, you should read it because you're the one who said there's nothing good on TV to watch. So first of all, I am so gratified, as I said on last week's episode, with all the incredible suggestions. I am making my way through Abbott Elementary and absolutely loving it. But this week marks the rise of another super suggestion that I keep hearing again and again and again and now have no choice but to become addicted to. Have a listen. Maybe it's true, writes one great listener, that almost all the characters on most current TV shows are selfish assholes, but there's at least one current show on which none of the main characters and maybe even none of the minor characters is a selfish asshole. The new All Creatures Great and Small based very loosely on the books by James Harriet. The setting is a veterinary practice in the Yorkshire Dales in the late 1930s. Mark, if you haven't watched it, this seems like more of your jam than mine. Of course, there's there drama. <laughs> there has to be. Of course, there's drama. The characters make mistakes and misunderstand each other. And some of the local farmers are cantankerous and arrogantly ignorant. 
but almost no one has genuinely bad motives, and most of the action is driven by genuinely good motives. This is the only TV show that I am watching at present. Joe Manson, Stillwater, Oklahoma. Joe, my friend, you had me at Yorkshire Dales in the late 1930s. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm doing it. I'm in. The next letter, I'm not going to read it, but I just want to preface it by saying this is about Robert's newsletter. Robert Scaramucci has been writing this incredible and revitalized newsletter. If you want back issues of the one he's talking about, which has my ode to corduroy, you should email him at rscaramucci at tabletmag.com. But we had a letter come in praising Maybe my essay, but really this newsletter that Robert has put together. Stephanie, would you do the honors? Yes, here it is. Love the corduroy. I don't have any selfies, but when I was growing up in the 70s, I was not allowed to wear blue jeans. Not appropriate for a young girl. Jeans were somehow bad news, but cords, yes, they were acceptable. They didn't have that bad influence vibe attached to them. Oh, how I wished for jeans. Mark needs a cravat and a pipe with his fabulous suit. That's amazing. Um, People can subscribe to Robert's newsletter, our official newsletter, by going to tabletm.ag slash unorthodox newsletter. Okay, here's another note. In Robert's newsletter, there's a picture of Mark wearing corduroy seated on corduroy. It's true. It's an amazing photo. Um, Someone's writing in to say that it looks like the image on the book cover that he's holding in that photo is plausibly the Princeton University shield, making it truly the preppiest, waspiest uh, photo of all time. Shall, shall I tell people what that book is? Please. Which I just grabbed off of, you know, a nearby table. It's it's leftover from the Gatecrashers episode. It's it's old Princeton research. It, in fact, is the Class of 1960 book, the yearbook, the Class of 1960 yearbook from Princeton University. That is, in fact, what I'm holding. This is a, a, an eagle-eyed, sharp-eyed member of the J. Crew who spotted the Princeton Shield on that book. Well done. And speaking of corduroy, we have another letter here. This is from Sarah. She says, hi, unorthodox. Are you guys aware that the band Wolfpack has basically identical hats to you out for merch? Um, This is amazing. Wolfpack is banned. Half of its members are Jewish. Their most recent album is called Schwitz. They actually sell a hat that is exactly like the Mark hat that we sell, which is a brown corduroy hat with like white embroidery. And there's a whole Reddit thread about people finally getting theirs. And someone says that they were worried because they got a Latvian post office tracking number, which makes me think that they are definitely made in the same place ours are made. Because when we order those, you also get a Latvian traffic <laughs> tracking number. But <laughs> it takes a while, finest, but they come the and they're amazing. mass-produced corduroy is coming out of Latvia. I mean, this is a well-known fact in the corduroy community. Uh, final letter this week. Um, the next letter also references Robert's newsletter. It references the moment at the beginning of the newsletter when he queries out loud whether he should say, hey, J. Crew noting that he is not Jewish and that many of the people reading the newsletter are not Jewish. And so does it impute assumptions of Judaism, cultural appropriation? Can Gentiles be in the J. Crew? And we get this letter that says, Robert, just go with, hey, J. Crew, because I'm a longtime listener and a longer time Gentile, and I would totally feel included by that. Shalom, friends. John Matthew IV. That, that is truly the Gentilic mic drop. I mean, it's one thing to be junior, the second. It's one thing to be Trey, the third. But to be a quad, to be the fourth, that's some serious corduroy heritage, if I may say so. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail, 914-570-4869. Mazel tovs. I have two mazel tovs this week. The first is to Bob Bourne, who was the creator of Peeps Marshmallow Candies, which I think are an Easter thing. I don't even know. I just know oh, they're yeah. delicious. They're sugary and delicious. He died at the at the very, very Methuselah age of 98. And he was he was a Jew. He was uh, he was Unzra. And we were proud to claim him and, uh, you know, doing it for the Jews and for those who celebrate Easter. For all who celebrate anything, a farewell to Bob Bourne, Jewish creator of Peeps. And also a mazel tov to Mick Leibowitz, who was called to the Torah as a bar mitzvah, who became a man at my shul this past weekend. He did a great job and, and a mazel tov to the whole Leibowitz family. And finally, this is a this is a, some inside baseball, but I just want to say from the mailbox, Rhonda Felson writing in with dropping some serious old school Springfield knowledge on me. And I just want to say 01108 forever, baby. Stephanie? Keeping it inside baseball, I have a happy birthday wish to my BFF and BFF of the pod, Irene. Great gal, great birthday. And Liel? My mazel tov is... It's a bit of a bittersweet one, but if you see the video, you know exactly what I mean. Is for Rabbi Benzion Pill and the good people of the Schneerson Center in San Francisco. If you have watched this horrific video, a man bursts into their shul in the middle of a lecture and fires 
a few blanks. And this is a shul mainly of, you know, Russian-speaking Jews. And the most amazing and impressive thing is as this anti-Semitic crazy maniac is fired, what, as far as anyone knew, could have been real bullets, everyone around the table sits very, very stoically. No one panics before getting up and responding. So Rabbi Pill and everyone in this community, may you know no more suffering and may the months ahead be joyous. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team also includes Courtney Hayes, Latanya Singer, Jerome Rusquet, and Sam Hacker. Please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Go to your favorite podcast platform and rate us. Give us as many stars as you think we have earned this week because it really does help people find the pod. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com, including, well, the corduroy hat that was mentioned on this episode. Episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem and mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. We enjoy getting snail mail. You can send it to P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 13001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Bill Seamers at Congregation Beth Israel in Bangor, Maine. And we come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>